for listening to our New Chapel podcast. We're for people to connect with God and be raised to new life in Christ. Be sure to connect with us at newchapel.com and on social media to stay up to date on everything happening here at New Chapel. Well, good morning, gang. Welcome to the last part of our series that we've called Home Improvement. If you have anything to take notes with, you can pull that out. I will tell you this. This last message is going to be a little bit more of an inspiration. It's going to be a little bit more of a preaching message. Now, I am more a teacher. I love having 75 little slides with points and check marks and all that fun. You'll have a couple of those today, but when I'm preaching, I need some help. So if you're new to New Chapel, here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for an amen. Everybody say amen. amen. I'm looking for somebody to yell, preach it. Yell, preach it. Preach say, go get it, pass it. If you drop the T, you just visited the South. I'm just saying. And so if you give me some encouragement while I'm doing this, two things. Number one, I preach better. And number two, I preach shorter. Ah, there we are. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4. You know, in different seasons of life, uh, my wife and I have found that we kind of celebrate the fact that we're still alive. And let me explain. Uh, when you're a newlywed and you get through that first year, you say, thank God we didn't kill each other. You know, you're just, you're just thanking God that nobody's dead. You thought about it. You thought about where you dumped the body. But, but thank God, by God's grace, you got, you got through it. When you have kids and you have little babies and toddlers and you're looking at them, you're just like, oh, God, tell me what to do so I don't kill them. You know, you're just so afraid, tentative. You know what that's like when you're a new parent. When you're a teenager, you're looking at your 15-year-old and you're kind of back to that spot where it's like, God, help me not to kill them. I just just want to spare their life, God. And so the purpose of your family, your marriage, your kids, it's not not to survive it. The purpose of family is not to get them out of the house. It's not to endure it. Your life is not to, to just get through a season. Your life is for living. And so we need to make sure that we know who we're fighting against. Nehemiah, the Bible says this. Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight. Well, Pastor, we got to fight? Yeah, peace must be made. There's no such thing as a peacekeeper. Those are the limp-wristed noodle-back people who cause all that trouble out there. We need peacemakers. Fight for your brothers. That's your family name. That's your surname. Your sons, your daughters, your wives. That's the nuclear family and your home. Verse 20, and then. Everybody say them. Then our God will fight for us. Amen, somebody? Now, I remember several years ago, my wife and I, we were building a house, and we were so excited about it. We were staying in this really small rental, and uh, we were building this house. It was just mesmerizing, but it was a lot of work. I mean, my builder went out of business about halfway through building my house, and so I had to learn how to finish framing. I had to learn about doing all the trades. We were going to wire it and put down the flooring and do some carpentry, but not, not not build a house fundamentally. And so I had to learn a ton and and I had to work with a lot of contractors and the trades. And one of the things that you have to do if you want a great home, and I would even say a legal home, is write it down, you must pass finals. So this is the final inspection. So uh, you start, of course, with foundation. We talked about that the first week of the series. And then you start to frame it out, all the roughing. And then you do the things behind the scenes And and you have to rough in your electrical, rough in your plumbing. You have to rough in all these different things, your HVAC, your mechanical systems. But ultimately, at the end of it, you're going to put drywall on. And and, and most people, they just want to go for that Pinterest house. 
Like, like to buy a house has more to do with whether there's shiplap than whether HVAC works. Well, that's not real life. And so uh, for me, I had to make sure everything worked. And then you got to put, I mean, just vent covers on. You got to put the switches on the electrical boxes and then the switch plate covers. And you got to make sure everything's done. In fact, when I was going through my final, uh, my electrical final, I was taking the electrician through. Everything was perfect in my house. Didn't say anything. Got into my garage and I forgot one switch plate cover. And I said, on my honor, you know, but he dinged me even for that. And so things have to be it's very precise. It has to be almost perfect. And so when you go into finals, final what? It's finalizing the plan. So uh, the shower, the, the bathroom, it didn't land there by mistake or by happenstance. It was part of the plan. You had to rough that in, and then you had to finish the whole project. And when you get to that final inspection and they give you that green little sticker of occupancy, you are realizing the vision. You're, you're seeing what the plan was altogether. I'm going someplace with this. Now, at final inspection, that vision is shown, and we want that with our families. Home Improvement is a series that revealed foundation and structure and hidden things. And at the same time, all of that stuff has to happen, but what do you want? You want the finished product. We want the family that looks good. We want the dream house. We want the kids who are obedient. And my question is this. As we approach finals, and listen, every day we approach finals. As you approach life and raising a family in this way, the question would be, what's going to be found? Are you going to stay with the person who you promised to be with? Will your kids grow up and have any kind of godly heritage? Will they like you? Will they want to be around you when they're grown? Things can look really good from the outside in, but if, if things weren't done correctly, if, if there isn't a final on that, if we didn't finish the job, it's hollow on the inside. My wife and I homeschool our kids uh, because we're smart. And uh, I say my wife and I, my wife is a saint, and, and she's, she's helping to raise those kids in, in this homeschool co-op. Uh, in fact, we have to go to a co-op on Tuesdays, and we meet all together. And one family in the co-op, every week, they do a family presentation and say, I'm dad, I'm mom, and give a little bit of a story and backstory. All the kids are there. Well, uh, two, three weeks ago, it was my wife and I's turn. We, we were going to go up there and give our family presentation. So I called Pastor Brian, told him I'd be late, and, and I went to this. It's a, it's a church in Belmont where this co-op meets, and uh, I went up there and sat with my, with my family and just played with my daughter's hair, and, and uh, went up there and gave her a little speech, gave Kai a kiss, and I split. And I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to share this with you because I'm a very private person. Kaya insisted, and I think it's going to help you. It's why I want to show it to you. It might be, even though I'm embarrassed, it makes me blush, it means a lot to me. A friend of hers texted her, a friend who was in the co-op. Here's what she said. A couple of things stood out to me about you and Joe that I admire. How Joe turned and gave you a goodbye kiss in front of everyone. How he was twirling Vera's hair and telling her that she was so special. How you refer to Joe as your honey. I've never once heard you talk negative about your children or your spouse, not once. I've never seen you lose your patience with the kids. Well, she hadn't seen it, but I have. It's from the love, and here's the word, the intentionality behind closed doors. You put Jesus first. That might be the greatest credit that I can have. Now, I'm sharing that with you to say, you're going to get little report cards like that too in your life. 
People are seeing, people are what your kids are seeing, your spouse is seeing it, and that's probably the most important. And what you have to do is build a home, build a family, build a life that's so strong that what happened on the inside, it both looks good, the curb appeals great, the gingerbread on the house, it all looks good, but it also is good from the inside out. Are you with me, everybody? Now, I studied in the Bible because I'm a little bit of a nerd uh, about those families in the Bible that turned out really godly and those ones that didn't. And I found a really interesting correlation. So there's these two figures in the Old Testament, Ahab and Jezebel. By the way, if you name your daughter Jezebel, I will not dedicate her, okay? I'm just saying. (laughs) But Ahab and Jezebel, if you don't know, they were just awful people, ungodly people. They were riddled with sin, and they had kids, and their kids had kids, so they had grandkids, and then they had great-grandkids. And the Bible details this whole family, and all together, with Ahab and Jezebel, there were 70 people in this group. Here's what's very interesting. In that family, they all died prematurely. And in fact, out of all of that 70, there's nobody alive today, nor after that 70 died, that carried on Ahab and Jezebel's uh, bloodline. That It all died out because they were so riddled with sin. There was no legacy because they had no room for God. And as I was studying the 70s, a number that, you know, if you know Bible numerics, it stands out and something like, God, is there anybody else with 70 kids that did it really well? And I found him. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to a very obscure passage in 2 Samuel chapter 6. There's a man named Obed-Edom. Now, the, the background on this passage before I read. The Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant. You're all thinking about Indiana Jones right now, so am I. They stole the Ark of the Covenant, which is where God's presence was, and they took it off to Philistia, to Gath, uh, to what we would call modern-day Gaza. They took it off there to the temple of Dagon. He was an idol god, and they put the Ark of God, God's presence, and worshipped Dagon, this idol god. It was a sick thing. Well, uh, Israel was suffering with a bad leader, Saul. He was an awful king, weak Noodleback leader, didn't want to take care of anything. He'll do it if it's easy. Well, as soon as he was out and King David took the throne, the first thing that was on David's mind was, I've got to go get that ark. We pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'm going to start with verse 1. David gathered all the choice men of Israel, good guys, godly guys, and he went with all the people to bring up there the ark of God whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells in between the cherubim. Verse 3, so they set the ark of God on a new cart, a new cart. Remember that detail. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments. Verse 6, Uzzah, another kid that I will not dedicate, Uzzah. He put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. So the ark of covenant is getting ready to fall. Uzzah goes, no, no, no. God struck him there for his error. He died there by the ark of God. Verse 9, David was afraid, and so would you be. (laughs) He said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? He should have thought about that earlier. So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. They're not going to the temple, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. 
The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Verse 12, now it was told King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. Verse uh, 13, and so it was... When those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, they sacrificed. Then David danced before the Lord. David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord, shouting with the sound of a trumpet. I want you to bow your heads. I want to pray. Heavenly Father, in this obscure passage in the Old Testament, we pray that you would show us something about family, something that we can hold on. God, we want the presence of your spirit in our home. God, we pray this. In Jesus' name. Everybody said. I find it interesting that in this passage, it, it points out the detail that to go get the Ark of the Covenant, they used a new cart. Now, the Bible says that in verse 3. So they set the Ark of God on a new cart. The problem was not that they were presenting the presence of God in a new way. There's nothing wrong with presenting God in a modern vignette. It's, it's that they presented the, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, in a way that wasn't prescribed. You didn't do it that way. It was known. They thought they were doing something holy, that they had this cart, and because it had never been used in a profane way, it had never been used before, it was going to be set apart just for this big trek from, from Gath into Jerusalem. They thought, they reasoned, this is going to be okay. It's, it's a hallowed cart, but it wasn't. They were doing things that broke protocol. It might have been something that was thought to be hallowed, but it was hollow. It was something that broke what God asked. What, what would God have done? God would have had the Ark of the Covenant carried on the shoulders of priests. They decided not to do it that way. And so what happens? The Ark starts to stumble and fall off the cart, and Uzzah goes, and he goes to grab it, and he dies. And you think, man, God, you're severe. Let me tell you something. Uzzah didn't die, and, and God struck him the moment he touched that Ark. God struck anybody that was going to touch that ark years ago when he said, don't touch the ark. It tells you something about Uzzah, and that tells you something about God. With Uzzah, it tells you this. He's got all of these people around, and through consensus, they think they're doing the right thing. But he's deceived. Even though he's a godly guy, he's compromising, and that tells me something about God. With the presence of God, the Lord does not need you to compromise to save it. Do you see that? And so what I'm saying is this. Many people want great homes, successful family, godly kids. We love God. We want godly results. It's not enough. It's not enough to want it. It's not enough to be even a good doobie. We must do it, write it down, God's way. God's way is always the best way. God doesn't need your help in things that he said to do or not to do. God needs you to do it his way, to yield to his direction, to find your peace and your promise in him. Say amen, somebody. God has direction for our homes. We have to do it his way. And everybody else is going to have an opinion about how you're parenting. Everybody else is going to have an opinion about how you should lead your marriage. You know, we send our kids to government brainwashing camps, and we wonder why they come out and have a different philosophy than us. We, we, we read books by psychologists who have no kids to tell us how we should parent our children. We, we, we listen to a, a Facebook or Instagram influencer, somebody on Pinterest about how to parent our kids, but listen to me, make no surprise when it doesn't work because God's way works. 
God's way lasts. God's way is the only way that can sustain you. Say amen, somebody. I just want to raise great kids, Pastor Joe. Stop raising kids. Raise godly adults. We, We need the next generation not to be a bunch of kids. Say amen, somebody. And while I'm on that, let me just say, God does not need your perfection to proceed. Some of us count ourselves out because you know, I'm not perfect. I've messed up. and I'm just kind of coming back to church myself. Who am I to assert myself? Who am I to say these type of things? Many people feel unqualified in their marriage. Many people feel unqualified in their parenting. But the qualifier for you to lead your family is a person. But it's not you. It's Jesus. And you can trust and lean on him. And even when you mess up, you can apologize to your kids and God will make a way. We need to be people that yield to him. Isn't it so like the enemy to make us feel like we, the parents of our children, like we can't say anything to them? That's the enemy that wants to silence you. But the Bible says in the book of Psalms, chapter 78, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter, check this, dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers told us. We will not hide them. I'm not going to hide my story from my kids. I'm not going to hide them from their children, telling to their generation to come the praises of the Lord as his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. Verse 6, that the generation to come might know them. The children who would be born, that they might arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope on God. The Bible says you have to open your mouth. You have to talk to your kids. You have to rehearse stories of God's goodness. Parents, listen to me. This is your permission to be honest, to be vulnerable, to utter, the Bible says, dark sayings of old. Some of the, some of the stories from when you weren't saved. Now, spare your kids every dark and gory detail of what you did on your worst day at the orbit room in 1999, okay? <laughs> You don't have to tell them everything. <laughs> a lot of amens happening all of a sudden. You don't have to, you don't have to embarrass you, but you got to let them know that you're not perfect and that you needed a Jesus and that you needed, you needed saving and that God put your feet on the rock and that you're still growing. They need to see that. They need to hear that story in, in, in your home and in your life. Don't feel disqualified to share those stories. And the Bible says if you do it, you'll save the generation that's to come. That's how you're, how are we going to, you're going to save them by being honest. You're going to save them by letting them in on all of it. And we live in a time, by the way, where good and even godly people yield so much of, of their Christian heritage just to the church. You think that because you drop your kids off back at New Kids or, or, or that you're even here, that one hour and change a, a week is going to make the difference, and it won't. Now, I do believe this. There are only two institutions ordained by God to train children. They are the church and parents. There's none other. But at the same time, in that partnership, I only have so much access. Even if you do small group, even if you have them in in some extracurricular things here, it's not enough. You have to do it. We're partnering with you in the training of your children. If you want godly kids, you're going to have to do it. Well, I don't know how to pray. You're going to have to put yourself out there. You're going to have to put yourself out. I don't know how to read the Bible. Listen, sometimes I don't know what I'm reading in the Bible. I stumbled on a story about Obed-Edom and had to wrestle that thing down until it made sense to me, and then I brought it to you. It doesn't make sense to me at first read. You can do that, and you'll save the generation that is to come. Wow, that's what God says. And in Psalm 78, the Bible says, I will open my mouth that they may set their hope in God. 
It's not just going to be a preacher. It's not going to be their teacher back at New Kids. It's going to be you. Wow. We have to talk to our family about God. Talk to him about what he's doing in your life, his promise to you, how, how you're still believing God for some things, how you still want breakthrough, how you're not done, how, the, how you're not practicing a religion, but you have a relationship with your Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, I know it seems like everybody else is doing it differently, and it's going to be hard. It's a lot of work. I have four kids. feels like I have 40 someday, okay? Like, they're asking me questions all the time. I don't know. Sometimes it's deep spiritual stuff. I'm like, where did that come from? Great, like, children's program. I mean, so they, anyway, so it's a lot. It's a lot of work to teach them and raise them. But what I've learned is this. I want results that not everybody's getting. I want my kids to have a godly heritage. And if you want it, if you want to do it the world's way, you're going to get their results. But if you want it God's way, you can trust in him. I say this point often, but it's because it matters so much. We side with timeless and tested over popular and easy. I want what God has. I want that timeless way of doing it. I want the way that's been proven by generations of godly people before me over what is in vogue today. Amen, somebody? Okay, I got to move on. So, so we got to pass finals, great homes, pass finals, and I'm going someplace with this. Great homes are furnished, furnished. What are you talking about? Um, so Kai and I, we passed inspection. And when we passed inspection, I got that little green sticker. I said, thank you, sir. Hope you have a great day. He left the house. I closed the door. And this kid that grew up as a Baptist, I, I was running with the best of them. I'm screaming, praising God. I'm telling you, I'm doing a lap around the house. Hallelujah. We got final week of moving. I'm calling Kaya. We're screaming. You would have thought we would have won a car in Oprah. And, and, and we're just flipping out. It's so exciting. And so we had to move that day. If we didn't move that day, we had no place to stay that night. And so within the hour, we're moving things in. And I remember we got everything moved in. I'm looking around the house, and, and we were in a small rental. Finally, we're in a house. And I said, Kaya, I don't know how we're ever going to furnish this. And over time, we saw things come in, but nothing like this. 2 Samuel 6, David was afraid. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? He's thinking about it now. The way I did wasn't right. There's got to be a better way. So David would not move the ark but he took it to the house of Obed-Edom. The ark was brought into Obed-Edom's house. That is furniture that's better than anything from Herman Miller, that's better than anything from Baker. He had the ark of God in his living room. The, his house became the temple. The Bible says for three months it, it was there, the presence of Can you imagine? God just moved in. See, we take for granted the fact that God's spirit is on the inside of every born-again Christian. But back in the Old Testament, it was only in one place on earth, and it was in, in between the angel's wings on the Ark of the Covenant. God's presence was there, and it made an impact. And the Bible says this about Obed-Edom. He was Obed-Edom the Gittite. Now, there's no detail in the Bible that's there by mistake. He's a Gittite. He's from Gath. Now, later, you find out that Obed-Edom is a Levite. He's a Jew. He's part of the priestly bloodline, but yet he's identified here as Obed-Edom, the Gittite. He's playing on the other team. In other words, he's not perfect, and the Bible calls him a Gittite, so he's moved out of Gaza proper, and he's headed toward Jerusalem, but he's not there yet. 
He's still becoming. He hasn't gone back to who God has called him to be, who, who God would say his lineage would, would say, you're a priest, you're, you're one that should be serving in the temple. He hasn't gone all the way back, but when David is considering all of this, he takes the Ark of the Covenant to the closest house of a Levite because it'll work. Now, he wasn't perfect. He was more identified at that moment by his past, but yet he welcomed the presence of God in. Here's what I'm saying. Write it down. The presence of Jesus must be at the center of your family life. When Obed-Edom had the presence of God in the center, it worked everything out. Things weren't perfect before. He was backslidden, if you will. He was still becoming identified by who God had called him to be, but it was because of the presence of God. You need the presence of Jesus in your home, and so do I. The Bible says this. Paul wrote to the uh, young disciple Philemon. He says this, To Philemon, our beloved friend, you're my best bud, and to the church in your house. This guy was so godly, he's raising his kids in such a way that he's like, you're having church in your house. Does that mean small groups come in? I'm sure. Does it mean people from church are coming over to eat? I'm sure. Does it mean that the family's doing spiritual things together, doing devotions together? I'm sure. Paul's saying, hey, I want to write to you and that church you got going in your home. Question, Christian. Do you have a church in your house? Does your family catch you in the act, so to speak? Do they catch you praying or reading the Bible or worshiping the Lord? Do you have that kind of relationship with him? I think about in the Bible, in the book of uh, 2 Kings 4, the Shunammite woman, she made an apartment in her own for the prophet. I want Jesus in the center of my house. I can't do it by myself. I've come to the end of me. I need God's presence in my life and in the life of my kids. Now, we have this phenomenon that's happening in America, and I, I believe it's going to change, but it is that when evangelical young people grow up, they, they turn 18, they're leaving the evangelical church and never coming back. They're not coming back to faith in God. And so sociologists actually did studies on this, and they came up with three reasons. I'm going to give you the top three, and I'm going to end with the first one, which is a biggie. Three reasons why evangelical kids walk from the faith. The first reason is that their kids didn't serve. Their kids didn't serve. So I have uh, my kids, they're serving back there, younger kids than them, and, and they're, they're taking care of them, they're serving them. But, but maybe you have a middle schooler or a high schooler, they need to serve with you. They need to be uh, greeting with you. They need to learn what it's like to, to wake up early and sacrifice some sleep and, and come to the house of God. What are we doing? We're serving. Because there's something about your faith you will never learn until you serve someone who can't pay you back. You need to serve with your kids. And when you don't, they become narcissistic consumers. Well, the GOAT team just doesn't meet at the right time. And I don't like this type of group. And it all becomes a Christianity that's all about them. And let me tell you the churches that closed in the shutdown. It's because church was all about them and their preference and not what the Lord wanted to do. And so you've got to serve with your family. Say amen, somebody. The second reason why evangelical kids are leaving the church is because they don't own their faith personally. You think, well, they're too young really to understand or read or talk about these things. Look, your kids can figure out your iPhone better than you. Your kids know things about like life and computers and culture that you don't know. Your kids are smart as a whip. They can understand deep spiritual truth because God wrote the Bible at a fourth grade reading level. They can understand it. But here's what happens. When they don't read, when they don't pray, when they don't engage, when they're not worshiping at church for them, 
What happens is we rob them of that heritage. And the number one reason why we see evangelicals leave the faith is because they don't see it radically lived out and incarnated in their own homes. Wow. Okay, but think about it. Do they, do they see you worshiping? I love it. So I wake up in the morning, my alarm goes off, I swing my legs over, and I immediately pray on the side of my bed. And I love it. My kids, I don't know where they got these jeans, but they wake up at the crack of dawn. And, and, and sometimes they're like, they're like peeking into our bedroom to see who's awake. I love it when they catch me in the act. I'm praying right there. I love it when they walk in on dad and I'm reading the Bible. And you know what? Some people are like, well, I got to get my one year in. I got to get my one year Bible. Hey, if they come in and what you reading, dad? You just read everything you needed. Talk to them about what you're reading. I remember I was talking to them about the Proverbs and, and explaining these things, and that's how you do it. You, 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 we need God in our house. Say amen, somebody. I need God's presence in my home. Now, Obed-Edom, he invited God into his life and then into his home. What does this look like? It looks like being faithful to church, praying that they would catch you reading that Bible, worship, praying. They need to know that you're seeking him. In Matthew 6, Jesus, he talks about charity and prayer and fasting. He talks about giving and trusting God, but he, he uses the example of you need to do it in the secret place. You need to do it hidden. But then he says, what you do privately, what you do hidden, our Father will reward you openly. There are things that you're doing, mom and dad, and I get it. It's hard. It's hard to work on your marriage. It just is. It's hard for everybody if that helps, but it's hard. It's hard to invest in kids. It's hard to take a different path than everybody else is doing. But listen to me. When you do it and when you trust God, God will reward you openly for the private decisions that you have made. Say amen, somebody. It will be a fight, but God will bless you. That's what it says in verse 11. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. People saw it. Josephus, the historian, he, he says that Obed-Edom was a poor man before this. But when the ark came in, there was material blessing and a blessing on the house. Having the presence of God, making that decision, it made it so he reaped dividends. Like what, Pastor Joe? I don't know. I mean, the kids did well in school. The, the, if he was a farmer, his, Josephus says that he was, there was a bumper crop. The dog stopped barking. You know what I'm saying? The blessing, right? And... <laughs> The blessing. And, and, and so, <laughs> and you don't get that at other churches. <laughs> if you want a marked home, you bring the presence of God in. What are you going to get? A marriage that endures? Kids who love God? Kids who are loving and respectful and industrious? Kids who know which bathroom to use? How do you do it? You make these private decisions. You take the high road when nobody sees, and then God rewards you openly. We want the gingerbread, all the fun, all the Pinterest house, but listen, it's made behind the scenes. I'm saying this, write it down. Pay now, play later. Pay now, play later. You're going to pay. You might just as well pay on the front end. Sacrifice. Well, we, everybody's doing it. Well, we're not doing that. You, you invest in them on the front end, and God will he'll reward you more than you could ever understand. Pay now, play later. God's blessing, it's not cheap, but it's worth it. Say amen, somebody. Now, Ahab and Jezebel, all their bloodline destroyed. But you know what's interesting about Obed-Edom? Seventy ancestors. Between him and his wife, their kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, 70 of them. And their life went on, but 70 are mentioned. God does that. 
He does that to build contrast. And he's saying, when you trust me, even when it's a small thing, even when you just left Gath, I don't know what you did last night or what season you're coming out of. Even when you're just taking those baby steps, those steps mean something to God. He doesn't discount it. God is behind you. He wants to see your family thrive and flourish. But you have to take that step. Got to take that step. And the Bible says in the New Testament that we're a royal priesthood. Why do you bring that up? Obed-Edom ended up becoming a person who ushered others into the presence of God. He became a doorman at the temple. Make it a little bit more practical. You did what you did, and your family went through what they went through, and you had a past, but now you and your sixth grader greet people at the front door at New Chapel. Do you see it? God is not all about your perfection. He wants your heart. So this past week, uh, little Harvey was born to Pastor Brian and Naya, and uh, I am her favorite, uh, just period right there, uh, relative, maybe outside of her parents. And uh, but you know, you're looking at that little squirt, and it makes you start thinking. And, and the people who are close to me, they know that if nothing else, I get fairly philosophical about everything. And, and I'm looking at this baby, and I'm thinking about how did we get here? And I started thinking about my family, and I thought about my grandparents. They were godly people. They weren't perfect. I mean, my grandparents would read the newspaper at night smoking a corncob pipe, okay? If they stubbed their toe, there'd be an oh, hallelujah. You know what I'm saying, everybody? They weren't perfect. But they made sure that I was in church. My mom was an alcoholic, and she would have custody on the weekend, but largely drop me off at my grandparents. And they'd make sure we were in that back pew, and They'd act like they knew the words of the songs, and they'd be, they'd be mouthing along in the song. They made sure I went to Bible camp, and they weren't perfect. In fact, my, my, my parents were ungodly, and yet here I am. I'm serving God, and it's because of an investment that they made, even though they weren't perfect. Do you see it? And I'm looking at little Harvey, and, and I'm thinking about her family. I'm thinking about, thinking about her great-grandfather, Royal Harvey, who was a tough dude, just punch you just as soon as look at you. He was a tough sailor, okay? And he had addiction, and he was just bad to the bone. But, but in, late in life, he got saved. He got born again. And he began to pray and trust God, and him and his wife began to serve the Lord late in life. The last of their children to get saved is none other than Pastor Eric. The rest of them accepted Christ before him. He gets saved, and then he becomes a pastor. And then I think about just how our decisions affect our whole lives. He had no idea that when he was going to go serve in Nuego that his daughter was going to marry one of those rednecks up there in Nuego. There's <laughs> a the difference in between a redneck and a hillbilly, and I'm proud of it. And uh, it's work ethic. And, um, <laughs> oh, you know, <laughs> Kaya marries me, and we're serving the Lord. Now we have these kids... And, and this generation that Harvey and my children are a part of, and they're serving God here today, and it's happening. And, and I'm thinking back to Grandpa Royal, because things weren't perfect in his life when he died. Not every family issue that he had, there was still some brokenheartedness and issues that were never resolved when he left. And I think that sometimes, New Chapel, we think we got to be perfect, have it all worked out in order to take any ground. It's all or nothing. And God just wants you to begin to take steps toward him. He can work out. Maybe it's not going to be all fixed in your generation, but God is faithful, and he'll see you through. And the generations that come after you should the Lord tarry. 
they will see the goodness of God. We will preserve a godly heritage because we can do it his way. What I'm saying is this. You need to have hope. Even though you're not perfect, just like me, have hope that you can do this. And when you prioritize God in the the foundations, in the structure, in the behind the scenes, then you'll be shown visibly by everybody what God has done. And you can give all the glory to him. That, my friend, is home improvement. Are you with me, everybody? I know you are. Heavenly Father, I pray for my church. God, I pray for their hearts. In fact, if you're in here and you just say, Pastor Joe, I want a blessing on my family. Nobody's looking around. Just lift your hand up and receive a blessing. You want a blessing on your family. doesn't mean anything's wrong. You just want God's blessing. Father, I pray for those right now with their hands lifted. They want your blessing. God, I pray that you move in their families, in their marriages, in their homes. God, I pray for prodigal sons to come home. Lord, I pray for teenagers to have the word of God on their lips. God, I pray that the heart of the family can be restored from drama and issues. God, I thank you that you set their feet on a rock. Lord, I thank you that you guard and protect anything, any any weapon that would come against that family. I call it down right now in the name of Jesus. I say that family will live and not die and declare the works of the Lord. We come against that word divorce in Jesus' name. We, we call long marriages that marriage will live and not die. And Lord, I thank you for the blessing to be visible. Such a great blessing on their life that others will see and they will know It's because of the goodness of their God. I bless my church in the name of Jesus. You can put your hands down with heads bowed and eyes closed just for one more minute. If you came in here and you're hearing this encouraging message, but you'd say, honestly, Pastor Joe, my life is not right with God. And I want it to be. I want to give you that opportunity. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When you make Jesus your Lord, Lord means boss. When you say you're in control, the Bible says that when you die, you'll have a heaven with with, with Jesus. You'll avoid a Christless hell. But more than that, Jesus promises an abundant life in the here and now. He wants to take care of his family here. So if you're in here and, and you need to get right with God, if you need peace in your life, The only way to have a relationship with God is through Jesus. I want to give you that opportunity. Church, I want you to pray this with them. Some people are saying this for the first time. Other people are coming home. I want you to pray it with them, to support them, and say it is a declaration of what you believe. Pray this out loud. Everybody, this is an all-play. Pray, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross in my place. For my sin so I can be forgiven. You raised Jesus from the dead. I believe it. So with these words, I confess. Jesus is Lord. I surrender. Come into my life, God. Forgive my sin. Put your spirit in me. I receive all that you have for me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for making all things new. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Give it up for those people that accept. Come on, New Chapel. You can do better than that. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine on you. Be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you his peace. And as you go, have a great week, guys. Love you.
We hope that you were encouraged and brought closer to God during this message. You can listen to any of our past messages and series either on this podcast or on newchapel.com slash watch. And be sure to connect with us on Facebook or Instagram to stay up to date on everything happening here at New Chapel.